This is the module on toxicology. We're going to talk about various different ingestions and toxic uh, ingestions in children, um, including the majority here on the list from Tylenol, aspirin, ethanol, um, and various others, as you can see here on the screen. I want to talk about, you know, the numbers and some of the epidemiology with ingestions. You know, in 2016, there was just over 2 million ingestions in the United States, and the majority of them occurred in children under the age of five, with almost all of them occurring at home at 93%. Um, and so I've put here on this slide your poison control number um, to keep to give out to patients and families. When working in the hospital, you'll have a number that you can call directly to work with um, a specialist from the Poison Control Center that will help guide your therapy while you're caring for a patient. There are various different types of, of decontamination. Uh, ones that we probably don't use as much anymore is your syrup of Ipecac. Um, there, you know, it doesn't show that it has uh, a high enough efficacy for, for parents. It used to be that parents kept a bottle of this at home. Um, but some kids got into this as an ingestion um, and then would start throwing up. And then some kids would have issues or we would have concerns for aspiration for some patients. So it's not recommended to give anymore. Gastric lavage can be very challenging for the pediatric patient, specifically because when they're chewing these uh, pill fragments, they may um, you may not be able to get them out because the majority of the tubes that we put in are relatively small and not large enough for us to pull out these the pill fragments go. It's not. Uh, it doesn't have as good a benefit as it does with our adult patients. Your activated charcoal is a is a tasteless, odorless um, charcoal based um, that that basically binds and helps eliminate some of your um, your 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 toxic ingestion uh, medications and whatnot. Um, it does have a very gritty taste to it, and it's it's pitch black when you look at it in in a cup. I mean, it looks pretty um, dark. So most, most patients are not like, yeah, I'm not going to drink that. So we often have to hide it into something else. When I worked in the emergency room, one of the things that we did is we put it in like chocolate milk or we would put it in a chocolate syrup type of um, uh, base, which makes it a little bit um, more enticing for pediatric patients to, to take it. Your cathartics, there's various different ones such as sorbitol, mag citrate, mag sulfate. The one that I'm probably the most familiar with with, with ingestions is your sorbitol because you can have activated charcoal with or without the sorbitol. And essentially it's just a laxative that helps eliminate um, the medications um, through the, through the rectum. You can also have a whole bowel irrigation, which is probably more commonly used in peds um, than the other forms. Or right, I would say activated charcoal is probably the most common and then whole, whole bowel irrigation is probably your runner up. And your whole, bowel, your whole bowel irrigation are recommended for patients that have uh, iron ingestion, lithium, potassium, um, illicit drugs, sustained release, or enterocotic uh, drug formulations. Um, and the process here, basically we give them polyethylene glycol in an electrolyte solution, and it rapidly evacuates the contents of the GI tract within two to six hours. I do have a couple of tables for you guys to review within your text. Table 37.4 goes over all your decontamination um, methods. And then table 37.5 goes over some of the common um, antidotes for some of the common, commonly ingested medications that patients take. Where the list is not, the, the list in this presentation is not exhaustive. There are so many other drugs that patients can get into. Um, we just don't have enough time to go over all of them within this module.
The first one we're going to talk about is alcohol or ethanol. And I'll refer to this as ETOH within the, the next few slides. Um, but essentially, you know, for patients that are naive, that have an alcohol ingestion, um, it is metabolized at a rate of about, around 10 to 25 milligrams per deciliter per hour. Um, for patients that have, uh, patients do run the risk of becoming hypoglycemic. So we want, when we're treating them, we want to use, you know, we want to support that and treat it appropriately. And then we, when we look at toxic doses, this is for anyone that has um, a level of, anyone that has ingested 0.5 mLs per kilo of 100% alcohol, or they have a blood alcohol level of 50 to 75 milligrams per deciliter. Your treatment for the most part is going to be supportive. So depending on how significant this is, um, you're going to have various different treatment options. So first thing you're going to do is you're going to provide supportive care. So if their blood sugars are low, you're going to give them dextrose. Um, if their levels are extremely high or there are concerns of how high the level is, you can do hemodialysis to dialyze off um, the ethanol. Um, also note that within this lecture, there are many of these ingestions that have a elevated gap metabolic acidosis. So ethanol is one of them. Um, so these patients, oftentimes we will actually, after doing our, you know, our lab work, we're going to get a, an alcohol level. We're going to get blood gas. We're going to get um, your electrolytes, your CMP. Um, you're going to want to check all that. Then you're also going to evaluate where's the safest place to, to put this patient. So for someone that's pretty out of it, you're going to want to have you're going to want to admit them to assess them for CNS depression and seizures. And even more so, you're going to want to protect their airway. So patients that have these ethanol ingestions, you're going to want to make sure they're not going to vomit and aspirate on their emesis and things like that. So just keeping them in the hospital and having someone lay eyes on them um, is, is probably appropriate for, for an admission. Um, you're, again, you're going to want to treat any type of electrolyte imbalances and any type of hypoglycemia. Ethylene glycol is found in most antifreezes for vehicle antifreeze here in the United States. Um, and it's, it's a drug that oftentimes can be abused by the adults um, because it's a very inexpensive way to get a buzz. Um, but for kids and, it's, and also for animals, believe it or not, the, it tastes sweet and it, the color of it is very attracting because it has that fluorescent yellow or fluorescent green color. So it almost looks like a Gatorade and it has a sweet taste to it. So it, they're, they're enticed to keep drinking it. Uh, but the, the real problem with ethylene glycol is that the, um, once it's in the body, the alcohol dehydrogenases convert to these toxic metabolites. And this causes havoc on multiple different systems in the body, specifically the kidneys, uh, but you can also have issues in with respirations, um, CNS, um, and renal failure. Um, so these patients will have an elevate again, ethylene glycol is part of your um, MUD piles acronym, and you will see an elevated uh, gap metabolic acidosis, but you will also see an elevated osmolar gap. So I've put here on the slide, and it's also right in your text, how to calculate your osmolar gap. So you have your calculated serum osmolarity calculation, which also adds on the alcohol formulation as well. So it's two times your sodium plus your glucose divided by 18, your BUN divided by 2.8, plus your alcohol divided by 4.6. And again, to treat, we have two options here. One, the first option, if, 
if it's uh, first off, if your hum- if your level is greater than fifty, if your ethylene glycol level is greater than fifty milligrams per deciliter, you're going to have to put this patient on dialysis. For levels that are lower or conjunctive therapy, you can use a medication called 4MP, um, or you can you would have to put them on an alcohol regimen. And what both these drugs do is it inhibits the alcohol dehydrogenase um, that's the that that converts to those toxic metabolites. And I've had to do this once in my career. We had a an older lady come into our emergency room years ago who was abusing um, antifreeze to get drunk, and she came in and she was uh, lethargic and then went comatose. She had all kinds of liver problems, um, but we ended up having to have our pharmacy prepare IV alcohol to help inhibit this alcohol dehydrogenase, as well as put her on dialysis. And then thiamine and pyroxidine also play a part in helping eliminate some of those toxic metabolites. Your isopropyl alcohol and methanol ingestions, I put on here, they're very short descriptions within your text. Um, with, with isopropyl alcohol, this is your rubbing alcohol that you would find in, your, in most um, medicine cabinets in, in America. Um, these patients can have CNS depression, gastritis, hypotension, respiratory depression, a non-acidotic ketosis. And then for these patients, essentially, we're going to provide supportive care. Um, so they may also have a wide osmolar gap. So we're going to uh, treat any low blood sugar. If they have respiratory depression, we're going to support their airway, provide um, ABCs. Um, if they're hypotensive, give them fluids or provide pressors. For your methanol ingestion patients, again, this is also part of your mud piles. Um, you're going to find this is also found in antifreeze. It's also found in some windshield washer solvents. And essentially, this the the, the methanol converts it converts to formaldehyde, um, which is which is problematic. So here, these patients will also present just like your ethylene glycol patients with a wide anion gap and an osmolar gap. Some of the symptoms these patients can exhibit are blindness, cerebral edema. Um, you're going to treat them with fomepazole. Um, and again, you can treat them with the IV or oral alcohol preparation, just like your ethylene glycol. Next, we'll talk about Tylenol. This is probably one of the more common ingestions that we see, specifically those patients that are trying to um, attempt suicide. Um, oftentimes, we'll see this in young children who are just taking, um, who have just gotten into the medicine cabinet or something. Um, but by definition, Tylenol. Um, overdose or Tylenol toxicity is is any um, amount that's more than 200 milligrams per kilo or greater than 10 grams in a 24-hour period, and that's whichever number is less. Um, for children that are uh, six years of age or that are less than six years of age, we can also look at this at um, over a period of time. So greater than 200 milligrams per kilo in a 24-hour period or 150 milligrams per kilo per day for a 48-hour period, or 100 milligrams per kilo per day for a 72-hour period. Now, the antidote for Tylenol ingestion is mucamus, which is also N-acetylcysteine. And we can give this in two preparations, either orally or IV. The oral preparation is over 72 hours. The IV is over 21. Um, And these patients, we're going to get Tylenol levels as well as liver function tests blood gases, um, to evaluate them um, when they first come in. We'll note that the most effective time frame to begin treatment is within the first eight hours. And off to your 
off to your uh, right of the screen, you have the Rumac Matthew uh, nomogram. And this is um, whenever you buy Tylenol, you'll in, inside the packaging, they have this chart in there to help with treatment um, if someone were, were to become toxic. So when you look at this graph, um, we look at the from zero to four hours. So your early initial treatment, you're going to start plotting your patient's levels. So typically, we'll keep one of these sheets on the unit when these patients are admitted, and we'll start checking serum levels um, at least every four hours. Um, and then we're, we're, we're the way this chart works is that if their level is below this bottom line, then more than likely they do not have hepatic to hepatic toxicity. If they fall within this pink line, then it is possible that they could have hepatic toxicity. And of course, if they're above it, it's probable. Um, and we'll check this within the first 24 hours. And then the criteria for liver transplant, you know, if someone, if we've gone through and we've treated this patient, we've corrected their fluid and electrolytes and their pH is still um, at 7.3 or below, if they have a PT level of 40 or more at 40 hours or a PT of 100 or more anytime, their INR is greater than 6.5, um, if their kidneys took a hit with a creatinine of 3.3, or if they've developed grade 3 or grade 4 encephalopathy, you should consult your, your transplant team um, to either list this patient or at least talk to the family about listing them for a transplant. Moving on, we'll talk about um, aspirin, which is your... Uh, acetosilic acid. And this not only comes just as an aspirin preparation, there is uh, salicylates in multitude of different um, household products, such as oil of wintergreen, muscle rubs, GI preparations. They're even found in wart remover and some acne uh, medications. So um, when someone comes in with an ingestion or, or there's concern, you're not sure what it is, you might want to dig a little bit deeper into the history to find out what's going on with the patient. Now these, again, this is part of your mud pile. So you have that wide anion gap, metabolic acidosis, and there's a multitude or there's, it's multifactorial what happens here. So they have this metabolic acidosis as a result of um, an in inhibition of the Krebs cycle, which develops this increased tissue glycolysis. They also develop a respiratory alkalosis due to the direct stimulation from the salicylate on the respiratory center. They can have a series of uh, multi-system problems, such as nausea, vomiting, hypoglycemia. They have the hypokalemia due to uh, renal excretion. They can have a tinnitus. Again, they can have the tachycardia, tachypnea, dehydration. In severe, severe cases, they can have delirium, seizures, rhabdomyolysis, a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, increase in a cranial pressure, and arrhythmias, um, which could lead to asystole. When treating these patients, again, you want to do your, DI, your GI decontamination. You want to rehydrate them, replace any lights that are lost. You're going to give them activated charcoal without the sorbitol. You're going to want to check labs every two hours, specifically their, their um, salicylate levels every two hours until they reach their peak, and then you're going to monitor it every four hours. And then we're going to get a blood gas every four to six hours as well, along with the urine pH. Because our goal to treat these patients is to give them IV sodium bicarb. And you're going to give them one to two MEQs per kilo. And our goal is to try to help alkalinize their urine um, with a gold urine pH of around seven and a half to eight. Um, so that's the reason why you're checking all those levels in concert. You're going to treat any hypoglycemia. You're going to correct any seizures. You're going to provide supportive care. 
And anyone with a salicylate level greater than 100, you're going to consider putting them on hemodialysis. Next up, we have our iron ingestion. And anyone that has, that has ingested more than 40 milligrams per kilo of elemental iron, um, they're going to be directed to go straight to the emergency room to be treated. It's considered toxic if it's greater than 60 milligrams per kilo. Some of your signs and symptoms are going to be, uh, especially within the first four to six hours, are not nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And believe it or not, iron, which makes most people constipated at high levels, could cause diarrhea. Um, it can cause a metabolic acidosis, uh, uh, coma, hypotension, shock, liver failure. And of course, with your liver failure, you can have all the other issues such as coagulopathies, encephalopathy, seizures, and ultimately death if not treated. Um, again, lavage, especially if you do a gastric lavage, it might be helpful within the first hour. But again, with our small children and our pediatric tubes, um, if, they, if they've chewed up pill fragments, it may be difficult or impossible to try to um, evacuate those from the stomach. So you may have to go right to a whole bowel irrigation, um, which should be considered um, for these patients. Um, the activated charcoal is not going to work um, because it does not absorb iron. So you would not use that as a treatment option. Your IV fluids are going to help rehydrate the patient. Pressors are going to help support their blood pressure. Sodium bicarb to help um, correct their acidosis. And then we can use a chelating agent called defuroxamine methylate or DFO, which is known as the antidote for iron ingestion. Within the last eight to 10 years, we've seen a lot of these um, ingestions of laundry packets. And it's unfortunate because these laundry pack packets are very colorful and they're small size. So oftentimes young children think that they're some type of treat. Um, they do, the packaging has a real thin uh, plastic coating, which can be easily dissolved with water. Um, unfortunately, you have higher concentrations of surfactants and alcohol um, in these small packets, even more so than your normal laundry detergent. Um, and when you mix this with water, it gives it a much higher pH of around 11. They can have a multi-system uh, problem such as GI, respiratory. If they get this in their eye, they can have an ocular toxicity or a burn to the eye. Um, they'll have symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, drooling. They can have respiratory symptoms of shortness of breath, wheezing, bronchospasm. And there are others that are listed in the textbook as well. Um, you want to rinse out their mouth. You want to rinse off their hands. You want to give them milk or water if they're, if they're okay. If they're vomiting, you're going to give them nothing by mouth. We're going to consult GI. We're going to go ahead and evaluate their, um, and do an endoscopic valuation. You're going to get a baseline chest x-ray, but if there are concerns for any type of aspiration, pneumonitis, you're going to want these x-rays for, um, evaluation, um, to see if they're improving or getting worse. We can nebulize beta agonist um, agents as well as give them oxygen. If the um, respiratory status is, is a concern, you can intubate them and put them on mechanical ventilation. And then, of course, if they have any type of eye injury or eye contamination, you want to irrigate the eye. Next up, we have our opioids. And we have, in, this, in the United States, we have addressed the significance of um, prescribed opioid concerns. And then with these concerns, you know, with, with multiple people getting um, large quantities or large prescription amounts for opioids, you know, children um, are at risk for ingesting these medications. And it's not just that. You have some patients that are drug-seeking, um, you know, even your pediatric patients, you know, with chronic pain, 
um, can have a high tolerance for opioids. Some of these patients may even revert to the streets for street drugs, such as heroin, um, to try to get either that high or to help treat their pain. And we know that these medications can cause a variety of different symptoms, such as euphoria, a decreased GI motility. Uh, drugs like morphine can cause a histamine release, which helps vasodilate your uh, blood vessels, which can drop your blood pressure. They can have bronchospasms, respiratory depression, seizures. Um, when treating these patients, you definitely want to call poison control uh, to give them a heads up. And poison control, they're your best friends when you're dealing with toxic ingestion. They will give you all kinds of information, support. They will help follow up on, on drug levels for you. So you always want to keep them in the loop. You want to uh, evaluate the patient's ABCs, provide supportive care, support their airway. Um, you want to be aware of any type of lethal ingestion. So if there's someone had a significant overdose um, or if there's like a significant amount of drugs taken, um, you want to get all your drug levels obtained when this patient comes in um, so you can monitor the progression of their therapy. And then patients that are chronically using narcotics or opioids, such as heroin, um, you, you don't want to hit them with a lot of Narcan right up front because they can go from um, deep into their high to wide awake. And oftentimes these patients can become very aggressive. Um, so you might want to do it incrementally, um, but you want to do it fast enough, especially if you're concerned about their ABCs or they're having trouble with their blood pressure. You don't want to waste too much time, um, but just be aware if you go from zero to 100 miles an hour, these patients wake up and they wake up very angry. Um, Narcan be, can be given in almost every route except for orally, and that's because it doesn't have um, a first pass, so it's not, bio, not bioavailable or in the oral route. Your doses is going to be from 0.4 to 2 milligrams, and you can repeat that every one to two minutes until you get your patient to wake up or you have a response that you're looking for. And then again, for those patients that have chronic dependency, you might want to go kind of slower, especially if you have a patient that's you're treating their pain and they're in the hospital for acute pain you definitely want to go with smaller doses. You don't want to go super high because if you go high, you're going to take away the pain medication, the, the, the reason why you put it there in the first place, and then they can have significantly high um, pain um, experience. Uh, again, you're going to support any additional symptoms. Um, so if they have respiratory depression and the whatnot, you're going to go ahead and support that. Your organophosphates, you tend to see in more rural areas. You, you see this oftentimes on uh, farms where they're, they're doing a lot of farming with using pesticides um, out in their crops. Um, you can also see this in biological warfare. Sarin gas is one that's pretty, um, pretty common. Um, and this essentially uh, will cause a multitude of different symptoms. And the two acronyms that I remember are sludge and dumbbells. And dumbbells is just a is just an addition to sludge. So with these patients, they experience what we call a cholinergic crisis, where they have the increased salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, and emesis. Dumbbells adds a few more things to that, such as diaphoresis, meiosis, bradycardia, bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, and emesis and whatnot. These patients need to have their airway supported with their ABCs. You may have to put them on mechanical ventilation. And there's two medications that can reverse these symptoms. Uh, one is atropine sulfate. The other one is 2-PAM chloride. And when I was in the service, I was deployed to the Persian Gulf. One of the two medications that we had to keep with us at all times were atropine and 2-PAM chloride. And that's because we were worried about biological agents such as sarin gas. 
So we kept those on us at all times. That's just how I remember it. Next, we have tri tricyclic antidepressants, and there's a multitude of different ones. Um, again, this could be the patient's own medication. Oftentimes, it's a family member that has the medication in the house. Um, this can cause potent CNS and respiratory depression. And this can have the opposite effect of your organophosphates. It causes an anticholinergic crisis. And if you remember from nursing school, there's this little rhyme that goes blind as a bat, dry as a bone, hot as a hair, mad as a hatter, red as a beet. And basically here you're having this increased anticholinergic activity, um, which they, they, they have pretty um, profound symptoms from. Um, again, we'll do some GI decontamination, support their ABCs, we'll support any type of seizure activity with benzodiazepines. These patients, we're going to give them sodium bicarb. Um, we're going to want to keep their pH between 7.45 and 7.55, a little bit more on the alkaline side. And then you're going to treat for any wide QRS complexes or, or ventricular tachycardia. Um, your IV fluids will help rehydrate the patient, keep them in a euvolemic state. And then if they have any drop in blood pressure or they require any vasoactive medications, norepinephrine will be our drug of choice because of the direct alpha activity. And that concludes our presentation on toxicity.